This is the last Sunday where we're finishing up the book of First John. And uh, there's a little, you know, bittersweet. <laughs> I mean, I don't like to say goodbye to a book after we've been studying it for so long. And, but uh, hopefully and prayerfully that you guys have uh, grabbed a hold of, as I've grabbed a hold of in studying this book, of what the book wants to communicate to us, what John wanted to communicate to us, and what God wanted to communicate to us uh, through John as the book um, is, in, is inspired. And so what is the book of, about? You know, just kind of the last time. The topic is so that you may know that you believe this topic was chosen because in chapter 5, John says, I write this so that you know that you believe. He wrote the book of John for the purpose of, I write this. On John 20, I write this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then John chapter 5, and first, or first John chapter 5, says, I write this so that you know that you believe. So that's what the book is about. And I will tell you, as we know, and went through the, the entire series or the entire book, that John lays that on pretty thick. And uh, just to give you an example of how thick, let's just read some passages in First John. By this we know that we have come to know him. First John 3, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. We will know by this that we were of the truth. We will know by this that he abides in us. By this you know that the Spirit of God... By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By this we know that we abide in him. By this we know, 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 is written through the whole book. He's laying it on thick. So the challenge is, is every time you read the book of 1 John, we know what it's about. We know what John wants to communicate to us. By this we know that we believe. And the last topic, which is this morning, is the biggest topic um, in the book of First John, as it is mentioned more than any other topic. By this we know, by what we know, if we love our brothers, if we love our enemies, if we love our neighbors, by our love we know that we believe. So First John 4, 7 through 21 will be our passage this morning. Let's read it and let's work through it. Uh, you'll see that it's broken up through your notes, but I'm just going to read the whole passage here, and it will be on the PowerPoint. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is made perfect in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he is in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have, known, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has, has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, because he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect in, perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So when we want to look at this passage, we're um, going to hit a lot of nerves because it is the most dominant passage in the entire Bible, and it is the most dominant subject in the entire world. And a dominant, um, dominant topic in the Bible is the topic of love, and as is a dominant topic in the entire world, every single Hollywood movie practically has it in there. Love, 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 and we're buying, we're buying off the shelves. Love is on the forefront of our thoughts, the forefront of our mind, the forefront of our actions. When we have our children, we think, well, we've got to love our children, we've got to nurture our children. Love is the largest topic in the entire world. And guess who claims the topic? God does. In fact, he even says that you don't even know love until you know me. So if God claims the entire topic, which he even claimed it in this verse, then we can understand the entire dynamics of love just by opening the scriptures. And we get the right dynamics of love just by opening the scriptures. So what we want to do is we want to ask the question, well, what is the definition of love according to the Bible? Not according to the world, because the world has other definitions, but what is the definition of love according to the Bible? I will say that this definition is not given very often, and the reason why the definition is not given very often is because when you say the definition, you need to explain the definition. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the definition, and then I'm going to explain the definition of who you're supposed to love. We'll put it that way. So what is the definition? In John, 1 John says, This is love that he laid down his life for us, and you ought to lay down your life for others. Love is laying down your life for the purpose of lifting others up, just like Christ did for you. How do you lay down your life? You give your time. You give your energy. You give your resources. You give a listening ear. You give your attention. You give your grace. You give your forgiveness. You give your kind words. You give, you give your compassion. We are supposed to lay down our lives for the purpose of lifting everybody up. That's what love is. Christ did it for us. And then he, what does he do? He demands that we do it to others. In fact, he even wraps up the two commandments. The two of the Ten Commandments are what? Love God with all your, whole, uh, your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then love others as yourself. I loved you, gave my life for you. Therefore, you give your life for others. Last year, um, Pastor D gave me um, the staff where I'm in, in charge of the staff. And so the staff come into my office and, and we talk about what's going on, you know, in their youth group or what's going on um, in their particular ministry. And, and um, in my mind... Um, my goal is to make sure that if a staff comes and talks with me, that when he leaves my office, that he walks out on fire. He walks out more excited than he was before he even walked into my office as we work through all the things that, that, that they're working for. In fact, if you're given authority, your job is to use the authority to lay your life down to make that person more strong. That's what, that's what love is. And that's what we have to do to our children. That's what we have to do to our mates. That's what we have to do to each other. And that is what we have to do to the world. Lay our lives down so others will be stronger. In fact, if we just give you little secrets, even on preaching a sermon. 
You know, as we're preaching a sermon, what are we doing? We're talking and we're bringing up the Bible. We have a, a, a Jesus who died, but we have a Jesus who rose. So you should walk out this door more happy than when you walked in the door. Because the Scripture is that if we're pouring out love, as Scripture is pouring out love to you, it should make you alive, strong enough to love the person that you come in contact with right after you walk out the door. It's a powerful definition. Lay your life down so others may live. But let me ask you a question. Who do you do that to? Who do you do that to? And this is, this is why pastors can't preach this is because it's so strong and so powerful. Who do you do it to? Give me an example. Pretend like um, I'm just making up a story that um, your daughter was, um, was raped, date raped. And then she comes back and she says, Father, Dad, I've been, this is what happened to me. And it's completely destroying me within. It's burning me within. Now, am I supposed to lay down my life so that person can live? Just to ask you that question. <laughs> If I lay down my life so that person that raped my daughter could live, then I'm displaying hate to my daughter. Wouldn't I, wouldn't I be displaying hate to my daughter? See, so there is some dynamics in there that we are supposed to lay down our lives, but who do we lay our, down our lives to? Well, Matthew gives us that answer. And the answer that he gives, it says, love your what? Enemies. Love your enemies. What is an enemy? A man, an enemy is a person who is actively opposed to you. Actively opposed to you. We're supposed to love each other. We're our friends. We'll just say that. We're not actively opposed to each other. Everybody should be loving everybody in this entire room. And then we're supposed to walk out the door, and what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love our enemies. All those who are opposed to us, those are people that we are supposed to love. But he says, love your enemies, and then do what? Pray for those who has, gives a different word, persecuted you. So there's three different kinds of people that are in the world. There's people that are friends, our brothers and our loved ones, and then there is our enemies. And I would say that that is 90% of the world, 95% of the world that is out there. Everybody you work with are opposed to you, and that's okay. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to lay down our life so that they will live. But then there's this persecuted. What does persecuted mean? Hostility, ill treatment. And hostility is war um, aggressive war to somebody. So there's something that is very, very aggressive. So if we say, lay down your life to everyone who live, um, lay down your life to your enemies, we often think of the, the enemy that is, exists right now to destroy us. And what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to lay my life down. No, you're not. You're supposed to pray for that person. And then you're supposed to love everybody else. Now, you don't get a whole list of enemies because there's not a lot of people out to just to, out there to, to destroy you, to take you out presently, wanting you on the ground. There's not a lot, but we're supposed to pray for those. So as we're looking at this context, I haven't even got into my sermon yet. I'm just kind of just getting building it up before we get into the sermon. But we're looking at this, this context is somebody who has given you hostility, ill treatment, somebody who has, has sex offended you. That person is somebody that has cut so deep that has persecuted you. And what do you need to do? You need to, you need to pray for that person. Don't lay down your life so that person can live. Someone else needs to lay down their life so that person can live. But that cut is, that cut is deep. Or domestic abuse or child abuse. What's taking place? People say, well, I need to lay down my life so my abuser can live. No, we need to separate and we need to pray. But we're supposed to love everyone else inside of that. And even in the world, we had 300 and 
345,672 abortions that take place. There's an aggression of hostility to the unborn children. And there's still an aggression of hostility to the unborn children. And we are supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who are persecuting our unborn children. Pray for them. It's just the same thing that, that Paul did when he walked on earth. Herod wanted to destroy him. But as Herod wanted to destroy him, what did he do? He prayed for Herod and still loved all of his enemies. And so I just wanted to give you that information that when I say lay down your life, I'm talking about 98% of everybody in your life you're supposed to lay down your life to. And there's also people that are going after you right now to try to take you out and pull back, pray for those. Just take that in that context. But I'm going to lay it on pretty thick that you don't have any options not to love your enemies. Number one, loving one another proves that we are born of God and that we know God. When Adam and Eve sinned, there's something that took place in this world, and the thing that took place in this world is that there was an annihilation of relationships. When they sinned, it was an annihilation of relationships between God and man, between God and woman, between man and woman. We see that in Genesis, right in the, the second chapter, that after sin, or the third chapter, after sin took place, what did Adam do when he got asked him the question? What did you do, Adam? What did he do? He pointed to his wife and says, it wasn't me, it was her. An annihilation of relationships. Throw her under the bus so I could be okay is exactly what took place. And then we even see further in the chapter that the woman is going to go after the man in an aggression of marriage relationship, in an aggression of relationships. And we see that annihilation of relationship with, between children and mother as well. Childbearing would be very difficult but it's talking about all the way through the life. I mean, I don't know if you guys, your children have been absolutely perfect, but there is, there is difficulty in raising our children. That's because sin entered the world, and as sin entered the world, that relationship has been hurt. Therefore, it needs to take an aggression to make the relationship okay, to make the relationship good. But that is what happened when sin entered the world. Annihilation of relationship with a woman and a serpent, annihilation of relationship... With the man in the ground, thorns and thistles will come up. Relationships were completely shattered. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to earth for a purpose of restoring relationships. Therefore, what did he do? He went to the cross. He lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died in our stead for the purpose of restoring our relationship with God. Therefore, we are to love him with all our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. And then he transfers it to us since I died for you and restored my relationship with you. You live and exist to destroy, restore your relationships with everybody else. Love one another. First John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When we accept Christ as our Savior, what takes place? According to John 3, we are born again. Are you born again? When we are born again, according to this passage, we are born again to God, and we know God, and who God is, God is love. Therefore, we must be lovers of others. You've been born again for a purpose. 
And the purpose is to lay down our lives so that others will live. That's the, that's the purpose. Christ laid down his life so we live. We are supposed to lay down our lives so others would live. And by doing that, it will prove that we have been born again. We know God is what it would prove. Number two, loving one another proves that we see God's love. You cannot learn love by reading a book. You cannot learn love by watching a movie. And you cannot even learn love by any sort of education at all. There is only one resource where you can learn to love. And the only resource that exists where you can learn to love is that if you are loved, you are being educated to love. The only way we can learn love is if we are loved. And in the process of us being loved, we don't even know it, but we are being educated and understand and even given the hardware to love others. Time Magazine published an article by Maya Sholovitz, Sholovitz. And, um, and this is a, a secular article, but it, what it does is it, it takes children and see what um, impact love has on children when we raise, when we raise children. And um, she is um, not a believer, um, but uh, during the study, she found out lots of different things that I would say that these things are correct. That love changes, and this is all across the board. This is just her article, but I've seen it all across the board. Love changes the brain of a child. Love changes a brain of a child. In fact, she goes into the scientific names, the hippocampus of the brain of the child. When it is loved, it actually brings motivation, or if a child is not loved, it brings a lack of motivation. A child who is loved has a stronger hippocampus, is what it is, a hippocampus that brings joy, motivation, confidence, better attention skills. This is what happens to the brain when a child is love. But a child with a weaker hippocampus brings depression, stress, lower attention skills, lower IQ, twice as likely to be developed a mental illness, and Alzheimer even at an older age. You get that? And you're being raised as a child, your brain is, even, if you're not being loved, your brain's not even being developed to the point where it needs to be to sustain you older in life. There is a powerful tool out there, and according to this secular study, they're saying that this powerful tool is love. It doesn't only change the brain, it changes the attitude. If you do not love, hate and anger and rage come within you. It's an antidote. Love is an antidote to wipe out the hate, anger, and rage in a human being as we're raising children. It carries a power, therefore it cannot be neglected. Love also changes behavior in people. It calms anxiety, releases stress, gives security, provides strength, builds passion. So when you look at our, our children and as they are developing, the importance of us loving them is literally developing them. And the way that it's developing them, it is changing their mind, behavior, and attitude to the world that they're going to walk into. So just give it, you know, uh, biblical perspective, just to even, you know, kind of explain what the article says, is that if you love your children, just pour out your love in your children, raise your children in that regard, they're going to come out with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what you develop in your child as you are pouring out your heart to love them. You might be thinking, well, you know what, I was a child, and when I was a child, 
I never loved by my parents. In fact, I had an absent father. I had an absent mother, an alcoholic parent. I was beaten. I was abused. And I never received that massive amount of love that I desperately needed as a child. Therefore, am I out of luck? The answer is absolutely no way. You're not out of luck. Because there is a father that is absolutely perfect. A lot more perfect than your father. There's a father that is God who displayed his love and poured it out in such a powerful way for anybody to grab a hold on, receive, and let it fuel in your mind to change your thought pattern. In fact, what this love is is that Jesus did leave heaven. He came to earth, lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again and says, this love has been given and granted to you for the purpose of what? transforming you as an individual, and it carries so much power that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would literally even come inside of us even as adults when we receive it. Because it is Christ in us, and nobody has loved you on this earth more than Jesus has. Nobody has loved you on this earth more than Jesus has. See, Jesus understands the power of love. Since he understands the power of love, he says, embrace me. And you will get everything that you might not have gotten as a child. You'll get everything that you desire as an adult. And it's all written on my word. And then he uses the word believe. There's a problem. We just don't believe enough to literally see that amazing love that has been granted to us. First John 4. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. So that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love each other. I learn love by being loved. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's where we learn love, because everybody in this room has been loved. Number three, loving one another proves that God's Spirit is within us. If everyone laid their life down to lift others up, what would this world look like? If everyone, we'll just say love, laid their life down to lift others up, what would this world look like? Well, number one thing, there'd be no starvation in this world. The richest hundred people have more money than the rest of the 7.7 billion people. Say that again. The richest 100 people. Now, there's probably 300 in this room. So we'll just take 100 people. There's 100 people right there and say that they are the richest 100 people. They have more money than the 7.7 billion people in the entire world. What's the definition of love? Lay down your life so others would live. Now, I'm not a socialist, and I'm not saying that whatsoever. What I'm saying is I am a Christian, and as a Christian, I have resources that I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to love. But if you look at it, if everybody had this inside of them, there'd be no starvation. There'd be no war. There'd be an excellent economy. In marriages stayed together, it's proven that it would have a snowball effect on the world economy, on the United States economy, and hundreds of billions of dollars would be planted into the world's economy just if the marriages stayed together. Just if, if the marriages stayed together. Hundreds of billions of dollars. If everyone loved each other, there'd be no fear. There'd be no anxiety, no anger. It would be literally heaven on earth. And when Jesus Christ comes for his people, what are we going to do? 
we're all going to lay down our lives so the other person lives and is going to be called heaven that day. But we're not there yet. But just think about this. If the church, just the church, just Christians figured this out, that I'm supposed to lay down my life so others will live, would it have an impact on this world? And what impact would it have on this world? Remember, love is the greatest topic in the Bible. (laughs) That one word exists to change you for the purpose of changing the world. Because if it changes all of us, it is going to change the world. 1 John 4, 7 says this, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. If we love one another, God abides in us and has given us what? His spirit. And then Acts 2, what do we see? That the spirit will be poured out upon his people. And when the spirit is poured out upon his people, what do they do? They went after the world, gave themselves to the world. They sold what they had. They gave to the poor. They combined as a body to make sure that people are given the gospel and make sure that people were loved. That's what the spirit does. You see, what happens is that God gives us the Spirit for a reason. He loved us for the purpose of loving others so the world will be changed. That's why we have the Spirit of God. Number four, loving one another proves that our testimony and confession is true. In August, I hiked um, Oregon on the Pacific Crest Trail. And uh, during that hike, it was 500 miles total, but uh, my wife, my daughter, 19-year-old daughter, came in and hiked 100 miles with me right in the middle of the hike. So she hiked from Odell Lake to Sisters is, is where she hiked, and um, it was a great, a great time with her. But in the process of this hike, you know, you meet people that are on the trail that have um, that are hiking with you or alongside you, and as you meet them, you kind of, you, you talk to them. Everybody talks to everybody on the trail, and we met this, um, this mom and her son, and her son was uh, 12 years old, and, uh, and they weren't uh, doing very good physically. Um, in, in other words, uh, they were on the trail a month before I even started, and uh, they, um, I caught up to them, we'll, we'll put it that way. Uh, so they were not going very fast, and uh, the mother was worried about the 12-year-old son because he was skin and bones, and he stopped eating on the trail and, uh, because he, was getting, um, he, just, he just stopped eating. And uh, you can't stop eating on the trail because you're going to waste away to absolutely nothing. So she was talking to us and saying, you know, we might end up pulling off the trail because it's just not, it's not a good, we'd like to finish, we'd like to complete it, it's our goal, maybe we should pull off and then get back on. And, and they were kind of debating when we were talking to them on what they should do. Well, there's some parts of the trail that were particularly um, difficult. And what I mean by difficult is we have on our phone the entire map of the trail and on that map, I know it's, it's in the wilderness, but, you know, you got a map on your phone. You always have to bring your phone. But on that map, you see all your camping resources. You see your restock resources. You see areas you get on the trail. You can get off the trail. You also see every single water resource that is there. So you understand where you're going to fill up and where you're not going to fill up. And, and during, you know, the entire hike, you know, there's sometimes that water is very plentiful and there's sometimes that water is not plentiful. And if water is not plentiful, you want to get as much water as you can in the source before you get to the other spot. So we saw the same day that we were even talking to this family, we saw um, that we we're going to go through a dry spell, 28-mile dry spell. And we weren't going to hike the 28 miles, so that means that we were going to go to bed 
with the amount of water that we'd have after the day was over and then hiking another six miles the morning over to make sure that we got water then. So it was going to be not easy. So sure enough, we get on the trail and we start hiking and, and we hike the entire day or most of the day and our water was running really, really low. My daughter, she accused me of drinking too much. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, but our water was running really low. So we sat down and I said, well, there's got to be water out here somewhere. And, and what happens is that, you know, people that, um, that hike the trail blog. And as they blog, they say, we know water sources is not good, but we found some, you know. So you kind of look and see if there's anybody that found any water sources that are around. And, and uh, we were at the Newberry National Volcanic Monument where we sat down and it was extremely hot. And uh, the rocks, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but uh, the rocks weren't that great on your feet. And we were really thirsty, wondering if we're going to even not make it to the evening. So we found a, a resource of water. And the resource of water was um, in the outhouses, what they do is they fill up with water and then you can pump to wash your hands. So after you use the restroom, you know, you use the restroom, then you pump and you can wash your hands. And, and one of the persons in the, the blog said, there is a water resources. You can go and you can bring your water bottle to where those in the outhouses are putting water in and then you can pump it and then you can use that for a water. So I look at my daughter and I said, you know, uh, um, maybe we should grab some water from the outhouse. You know, I don't think anybody will see us. You know, we'll close the door and, you know, we could just steal some water from the outhouse. We probably won't get in trouble. And she says, Daddy, that, that, that steamy, hot outhouse with stale water, who knows how long it's been in there. You want me to take my water bottle and put it up there and drink that? I said, I'm just seeing how desperate we are. <laughs> she says, I'm not that desperate. We'll, we'll keep on going. So sure enough, we do keep on going. And it wasn't even about three quarters of a mile away that when we walked on the trail, there was a whole bunch of jugs of, uh, of jugs that were out there. And what happens on these trails is you have trail angels, people that know the Pacific Crest people. They know where the dry part's at, and they will go see the monument and drop off water jugs for people. So we saw all these jugs. It's like, yes, water. One was empty. Two was empty. Three was empty. We started pulling them all through. There was a quarter of a gallon of, of water in one jug. And I'll tell you, I'm like, yes, praise God. So we took it. We put it in her bag. We put it in my bag. It's like, all right, we're going to make it. We, we started down the trail. And we hiked about a half mile down the trail. And after we hiked about a half mile down the trail, my daughter looked at me and says, Dad, you know how excited we were when we saw that water? You know how big of a rush we were? And we looked through all those jugs and think, is there not going to be any water? But we found that much. You know how we felt? I said, oh, yeah, I know exactly how we felt. Praise God, we got it. And she says, you know that mother and that son, you know, how would they feel if they dug through those jugs and found that much water as well? Or how would they feel if they d went through those jugs and they didn't find any water? And we're like, oh, you want me to take it back, don't you? <laughs> she goes, yeah, Dad, I think we need to take it back just in case that they come up to those jugs to get water or not. So sure enough, hiked a half mile back and, and, and we put it back. We don't even know if, if, if they got it um, or not. But what happens is that when Christ is in you, it automatically think of the next person. Christ did nothing that was on this earth for the purpose of just gratifying himself. He, did, he, he lived his life for the next person. That is how he thought. He laid down his life so others would live. When Christ comes in us, it's just, it's in us that we look past ourselves or should look past ourselves to make sure everybody else around us is taken care of.
First John 4 says this, 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, abides in him, and he is in God. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Therefore, he has put it in our spiritual DNA when you receive Christ as your Savior that you would look past yourself as he looked past yourself and see the next person that is out there. God is love, and if that is what we confess, it will come out of us. If that is our testimony, it will come out of us. Number five, loving one another proves that God is going to deliver us from judgment. What are the characteristics of the fear of being judged? If you think you're going to be judged, what are the characteristics that come out of you if you're afraid of being judged? This is what comes out of you. If you are concerned about being judged, you will be a judgmental person, period. That's what comes out of you. If I'm afraid of being judged, I will be a judgmental person. And the reason why is that if you're messed up, I'm going to be a lot better on the day of judgment. If you're messed up, I'm going to be a lot better on the day of judgment. So what do I do? I try to nurture myself. And as I try to nurture myself of the day of judgment, I start criticizing everybody else. It just comes out. The reason why is because I need to lift myself up so I would be better on the day of judgment because I have fear on the day of judgment. The other thing that comes out of you is that you gossip like crazy because gossiping is the process of nurturing yourself. If I gossip about somebody, I'm actually taking care of myself because if you're bad, I can be good. That's how it works. If you're bad, I can be good in front of judgment because what we do is we compare each other and we compare each other We all know we're going to stand in front of God, but we compare each other that we would stand better in front of God than you. So I would have to pull you down if God's going to judge me because I've got to be better than you. So that's what comes out if I'm a judge, if I'm afraid of being judged. Slander. What does slander do? Slander makes you feel better. So if we are a people that are afraid of being judged, what takes place? We judge others. We gossip. We slander. What's the greatest things that the church gets accused of? greatest thing in the world the church gets accused of. Being judgmental, being gossipers, and being slanders. Why? Because we start talking about God. When we start talking about God, there starts to be a fear that we're going to get judged one day. And if we're going to get judged one day, what do we do as churches? We start gossiping, we start slandering, we start judging each other. Why? Because we're standing in front of a holy God, and it scares us. And since that scares us, just under the, cur- the, the surface, we start pushing out to each others as a whole. First John 4 says this, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. By this, what is by this? I'll take the top verse. By this, God abiding in us, love is perfected with us. How is love perfected with us in Christ? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, that's the tip of the sword of how love is perfected. I will take your punishment so you do not have to. This is what the cross is. I will take your punishment so you do not 
have to. My death will be so sufficient that it will wash your sins away that you can stand in front of the holy God and be acceptable to him because of what I have done. That's what Jesus did at the cross. And he did it for a reason. He makes a statement, you will not be judged because I was judged for a reason. And the reason why is so judgment will not come off our lips. Gossiping and slander will not come off our lips. What happens is God was judged in our stead for the purpose of us loving each other. Because if I'm expecting a judgment from God, I can't love you. I have to put you down. I have to gossip against you because I have to take care of myself. I'm going to be judged by God. But according to 1 John, love is perfected with us at the cross, washed clean, stand in front of the Holy of Holies, should not be there, but I am there because Jesus died on my stead and took my punishment, and then I no longer will have one. And the reason why I'll no longer have one is because he took it, so now I just have one job. Not gossip, not slander, not judge, but just love. Just love. Number six, loving one another proves that God delivers us from fear. If God punished your sins on the cross, why would he punish them again? If he does punish them again or we think that he punishes them again, we are saying, God, your death is not sufficient. Your death was not complete. Your death was not quite enough to save a loser like myself. Therefore, you must have been a weak Jesus. But yet Jesus is saying, I have proclaimed everything to you so you would stop judging others, gossiping others. I want you to be clean, pure, embrace the cross. And once you are clean and pure and embrace the cross, you now have been empowered to do what? To love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, and that is the death on the cross, I laid down my life so they can live, casts out fear. I don't want anybody to be afraid is what God is saying. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not then again perfected in love. And if we are not perfected in love, we can't love others. You see that beauty of the cross? We put the cross and then we put a whole bunch of stuff with it. And the whole bunch of stuff that we put with the cross ruins us. And then as a result, it ruins everybody else. God just wants us to rest there. He wants us to rest there. He wants us to find our peace there. He wants to find our joy there. So we will do what? Then be empowered to love others. That's why this concept of love carries so much strength and and so much weight. He loved us for us to love others, but, you know, God just doesn't love us enough. And since he doesn't love us enough, we can't love others. God doesn't work that way. I love you. You must love others. Number seven, loving one another proves that we love God. Why do you give? You give because you're so happy that you have been given to. That's why you give. Why do you sacrifice? You sacrifice because you're so happy that you've been sacrificed for. Why do you forgive? You forgive because you are so happy that Christ forgave you. Why do you love? You love because you're so happy that Christ loves you. That's the gospel message. That's what the entire Bible is about, as Jesus sums it in two commandments. I lay down my life, so you will lay down your life for others. Those two, those two drive the entire scripture. 
Those two drive the entire scripture. Therefore, we're supposed to give, we're supposed to sacrifice, we're supposed to forgive, and we're supposed to love, and it is supposed to come out of us like no other person in this world that does not know Jesus. It is supposed to be the most powerful thing that has taken place in the church beyond absolutely all is because we have been loved and nobody has an excuse. The reason why nobody has an excuse is because even if you didn't have a father or did not have a mother, you have a God that displayed it. You have a God that displayed it. Here I am at the cross because I love you. As a church and as a people, we can focus specifically on him. And then the more we believe it, the more it will come out of our life. First John 4 says this, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We have been loved by the King of kings and Lord of lords, and God does not grant anyone an excuse not to love his brother because we have been loved by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, we have to be a people that do it. God, we just thank you for giving us the example of ultimate love. God, thank you for giving us the definition of love. The world does not know what love is, but we as a church, we as believers, we as Christians know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. That is what love is, and we should lay down our lives for others. Thank you, God, for not only giving us a, an education or a definition, but thank you for giving us an example. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for the sacrifice that has been given. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that have been granted. Thank you, God, for the service, God, that you have, in, um, that you have granted us. There's so much, God, that has been given to us through your Son. And we thank you for that. But God, right now, we just pray that you empower us to love others like Christ loved us. That we would be a people that does not hold any grudges. Be a people that looks across the entire aisles and have no enemies in the room. Have no enemies in this world. But have a heart, God, that is pouring out with love to others. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.